come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 189 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode here for you is going to be my Traverse of the Threes, number 12. And the two that I've paired up don't make the best double feature, but I do think that there is an interesting correlation here still. But the old movie from 43 is going to be The Leopard Man. This is another Val Luton and Jacques Tourner collaboration that we have here and the new one i couldn't get to the theater so i end up watching from black now i do think that this is an interesting exploring of what humans will do when they're pushed to the limits for different things and how the human condition can kind of be influenced by things around us and then also on this one i have many reviews of theater of blood this is going to be my traverse of the threes an older one that i've seen before giving it a rewatch i also got to watch a screener of mad heidi and then I got to do a potential summer series prep with a torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. And then I also got to watch a documentary of Fulci for Fake. So I don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here. So let me just say thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini review is going to be my Traverse of the Threes for this week. And that is going to be Theater of Blood. This is from 1973. This is directed by Douglas Hickox. This was written between Anthony Greville Bell, Stanley Mann, and John Cone. This stars Vincent Price, Diana Rigg, and Ian Hendry. This is a comedy, drama, horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 7.1 on IMDb and a... 3.6 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a Shakespearean actor takes poetic revenge on the critics who denied him recognition. So this is a film that I caught part of when I was in high school on one of the movie channels. I wasn't entirely sure what it was called, but it caught my attention. It was in college that I figured out the title, and it wasn't until well after that I got the chance to finally watch this all the way through. Now I've given it a second watch as part of my Traverse of the Threes. And where I want to start is that... I'm a fan of Price, and he has a great performance here. I find it interesting as he believes that he's the best actor working in London. 
So then we have this character of Devlin, who is portrayed by Hendry, who goes as far to agree with him. Should also point out here that Vincent Price is Edward Lionheart. Now, the problem, though, is that Edward is stuck in the past. The only shows he will put on are by Shakespeare, and Devlin states that he was hoping to motivate him to take on more contemporary roles. Instead, Edward commits suicide, and this is where I have a bit of an issue. Everyone thinks that Edward is dead, but no one ever found the body. They also take a bit too long to realize that he is alive. It's only Devlin, and then the police come around late in the film to, you know, actually try to stop this. Now, they're trying to stop the crimes, but they believe it's somebody else. Now, while watching this, I was questioning why someone like Edward would get as angry about not winning this award. I find it to be a bit extreme, but then again, I have seen negative feedback on things that I've wrote, and it cuts deep. It takes thick skin to put yourself out there. Now, Edward is a great actor, and he feels slighted on what his life's work is. It does make sense. I just think it still goes a little bit too far. So let me shift a bit more over here to the part that's comedy, and I do think that hurts the tension. I have a similar issue with the Abominable Dr. Fives in its sequel. I think all three of these would benefit from getting more serious and darker. Now, having comedy doesn't ruin it, as it makes the police look bumbling, though. Edward is a genius at how he plans to work things out here, but then it's also that the aspect of the cops won't be able to stop him, though, either. I should point out that this is probably due to the time, United Kingdom, so, I mean, there are censorship issues to keep in mind, so I will give it a pass here. What works in his favor, though, is its pacing. This doesn't waste any time getting into it. The opening sequence leads us to our first kill, and it has a runtime of like 104 minutes total, but it never hits a lull. I think part of this is included as how many plays that they could get in here, and that includes how many critics are going to kill off. I think this is a good choice, and it helped overall. The ending was good as well, as it's very fitting for how everything plays out. With a second watch, I don't know if it builds enough tension as everything is revealed. I was never worried that it wouldn't be, you know, that he was never going to get through what he was trying to and finishing his work. There was also a reveal that I saw coming early on, regardless, it's still a fun film. I'll then go to the acting here. I've already said that Price is wonderful, and he just becomes his character. What makes it interesting, though, is that he's such a good villain. He is the one who is killing everybody, and we feel bad for him to an extent, but I wanted to see him get his revenge. I just don't necessarily think the crimes that are being committed fit the punishment of that he's doling out. The movie does a solid job at making us love Edward with the personality that Price brings. Now, Rig is solid as his daughter, plus she is has an interesting reveal as well. I came to know her late in her career, so it's great to see her in these younger roles. Now, she is also quite beautiful. Now, Hendry is good as this lead critic. It does well in making us like him as well. He is a bit gullible, though. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. So all that's left is filmmaking. I'll start with the effects, which were good. There's not a lot of blood, and being from the 1970s, it could be a little bit fluorescent when we get it. That doesn't personally bother me, though, as it's really just kind of the sign of the era. I also have a soft spot for it. I thought that we had some creative deaths, and using the Shakespearean plays is a fun concept. Cinematography is good. There are some creative angles and shots. The rundown theater was a great set piece later in the movie. Last is the soundtrack. I love what they're doing for it for the most part. It has a classic feel. It also, at times, we get like, you know, for a play and it matches that tone. Mixing it in, there are some modern sounding pieces that also work for the scenes as well. Fits the era overall. So I would just say that that is solid. So in inclusion, I had a lot of fun with this one. I thought that it had some interesting concepts and it plays well. There's an some underlying ideas here that I can see. The pacing is fine, and it moves through the kills at a pretty good clip. The acting is solid, with Price being amazing. Effects were solid for the era, and creative for the kills is a bright spot. 
I also thought the soundtrack was fitting for what was needed. I have some minor issues and nitpicks, but overall this is just, it's fun. I'd recommend this for fans of Price and movies from the era, especially from the United Kingdom. So my rating here for the Theater of Blood is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Slightly coming down on this rating here with the second watch. And then for my next mini review is going to be a screener that I got to see of Mad Heidi. This is from 2022, but it's getting its wide release this year as it did its festival rounds. This is directed between Johannes Hartman and Sandro Klofstein. Now, these two also co-wrote this with Gregory D. Widmer and Trent Haga. This stars Alice Lucy, Max Rudlinger, and Casper Van Dien. This is a action-adventure-comedy fantasy horror film that is from uh, Switzerland. This is... Sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being Swiss mountain girl Heidi is abducted by brutal government troops and must defend herself and fight a war against cheese-fueled machinery of hate. So this movie that I got the chance to see thanks to Justin Cook when it was sent over as a screener. I believe that I saw someone else see this at a film festival, and it might also be coming to one of the theaters that I visit. Now, regardless, I confirmed it was horror, and this was like wild that I read about, so I was in. So this one knows what it's doing as well. Something I wanted to point out was that before the movie started, the version I watched talked about how this is crowdfunded solely. They were able to do things because of this, and it also asks you to support if you can, or at least not to pirate the movie. Does this affect what we see on the screen? Only in the fact that it wasn't held back by executives, and I appreciate that. So then with the disclaimer out there, this movie is credited as being a Swiss exploitation, And is it ever? They lean into the fact that this country makes good cheese. I like how we explore like Nazi or like fascisms and the evil of it by using something as safe as what we get here. I thought this was genius. That's not where this, you know, ends in paying homage, but you can definitely see that it's including like Nazi exploitation. This is even a tamer woman in prison movie, which is another exploitation subgenre. I'd even say that we're getting a bit of a gladiator film as well, where these things go. It feels like we have people here who have seen like grindhouse style movies and are incorporating elements. And I appreciate that. So to continue exploring the genres that it uses to work, another big one is comedy. This did make me laugh. Not all the jokes land though. The last genre is the most important one for me. And that's horror. I don't know if it fully goes into this subgenre, or I guess into this genre. I know the excessive gore and blood that we, you know, see at times, and it flirts with it. There are zombies of sorts at the end, and this is something I wish they would have used a bit more of. Regardless, I still enjoy that this, despite, you know, going light into horror. Now, there isn't anything more to flesh out with the story, so let me go over to the acting. Lucy is good here as our lead. She is cute, so that fits where, you know, she's still innocent. With all the bad things that happen to her, she is hardened into a warrior. Now, she also works there. Rudlinger is solid as this villainous commandant. He feels like he's the head of a secret police. He does his creepy laugh when bad things happen that adds another layer for him, you know, being bad. Now, Van Dien is good as our president. He isn't too smart, but he's just smart enough. It feels like leaders that we have here in the United States. I also like that we have here David Schofield, um, Kel Matsena, Elmer G. Sato. I think they're good and the rest of our heroes are as well. We also have some good villains like the Mad Doctor who is Dr. Schweitzfing Gebel who is portrayed by Pascal Uli. 
I thought the rest of the cast kind of worked for what was needed there on the other side as well. Now, all that's left then would be filmmaking. The first thing I want to say are the locations. I'm guessing that there is CGI here. We are nestled right up to the Alps, which is breathtaking. I think that the set pieces of the small village to the prison to, you know, play where the gladiators like battle go down and everything like that. Those are all spot on. No issues there. We get some over-the-top practical and CGI effects. I don't love the latter, but I think that it helps to showcase what can't be done with computers or without them, I guess, using them. Overall, I was positive about what we got in that department. Other than that, I believe the soundtrack here fits as well. So in conclusion, this is a fun movie that isn't meant to be taken too seriously. What I will give them credit for is giving us tongue-in-cheek you know, commentary that can be ignored or at the least you know, you can see parallels with what they're drawing. The acting is good. Lucy leads the way here with her character growth and the good villains to push her there. This is well made. Not all the effects are great and you know we're working with some though and it's impressive. I'd recommend this to fans of Grindhouse and Exploitation Cinema. You will see different things here that it pays homage to. So my rating for Mad Heidi is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then this is going to be hitting theaters across North America on June 21st, so I would recommend giving this one a watch if you get the chance to. And then up next for you, I'm going to be doing one here that is going to be a little potential summer series prep, and that is going to be The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. This goes by the original title of D. Schlagengruben und das Pendel. This is from 1967, directed by Harold Renault. This is written by Manfred R. Kohler, while also being loosely adapted from Edgar Allan Poe's The Pit and the Pendulum. This stars Lex Barker, Karen Dorr, and Christopher Lee. This is a horror mystery film from West Germany. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being... A count executed for murdering 12 virgins in a bid for immortality returns to life, seeking revenge. So this is a movie that I learned about when I was looking for horror movies from 67 as a potential pick for the Summer Challenge series. I did a bit of tracking to find this one, only to realize that it's streaming on Amazon Prime. What I didn't realize until settling in is that this featured a young Lee. Other than that, I thought it had a good title, and that intrigued me. So I'm going to go a little bit light here on my recap, but what I was going to say is that this is kind of fun to see a gothic-style film from west germany in the 60s seeing lee pop up maybe think of like hammer and uh, mario bava film the whip in the body and this would track because you know those tend to be gothic and this one also falls into that this one also reminds me of that bava film because there's a bit of sleaze without going too far and i'm guessing it's also the time that it was made so we have this count regula portrayed by lee and he's trying to do this ritual here so now we have elements of edgar Allan pose the pit and the pendulum and what I think is kind of interesting here is that it's is really just kind of using some of the elements here, like having the pendulum be in this. There's also a snake pit. Now, there's also kind of interesting thing here where Regula needs to have these 12 virgins be, or these 13 virgins be executed, but he needs them to be terrified. Now, in this movie, we have Baroness Lillian von Brabant, portrayed by Dor. Now, she's not scared, which kind of confused me a bit, but... So this prolongs the movie by allowing him to do different things to make her more terrified. I like what they're trying to do there. It also feels like a little bit of padding, but you know it doesn't really ruin things. There also has a mystery in this about who the characters of Roger, portrayed by Lex Barker and Lillian, are. I thought this was pretty obvious. I don't mind it. I think that the setting of this castle is great, though. I think that the acting, I think Barker's a little bit stiff as our hero. His performance is kind of wooden. 
I'm guessing they kind of casted him for his looks, which those fit. Dora's attractive. I thought she was also solid. There are also odd stretches where she seems to be in a trance. Not really sure why they did that. The best, though, is Lee. The only problem there is he has limited screen time. Other than that, I would say that Carl Lang, Christiani Rucker, and Vladimir Midar are good. Also have Dieter Epler. I think the acting here is fine for the most part. It's, I mean, if anything, it's just kind of our lead isn't great. I also think the settings are great, as I was saying. We get to see all these different torture devices. There's just some odd things that happened throughout this movie that kind of did confuse me. thought the soundtrack was good for fitting the mood for what was needed. So I would just say that this is an interesting gothic film from Germany in the same vein of Bava or Hammer. I think that it introduces a bit of sleaze while also still being classy enough. I think the acting is solid with Lee being the best part. The only issue is a lack of screen time for him. I'd also say the filmmaking was good with the best part being the settings used and the effects that we do get. I'd recommend this to fans of movies from this era and if you also are out to see all of the films in Lee's filmography. So I'm not going to give my rating here but I definitely would recommend giving this one a viewing. And then my last mini review here for you is going to be a documentary that I got to watch which is Fall Chief or Fake. This is from 2019. It was written and directed by Simone Scafidi. This stars Nicola Noxella, Camila Fulci, and Antoinella Fulci. This is a documentary and biography about a icon in the horror genre. And this is from a co-production of the United Kingdom and Italy. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being the first biopic about Lucio Fulci with never seen before footage, photos, and interviews. So this is a documentary that I watched while I was working since it's streaming on Shudder as I've been, you know, doing as of late. I like to watch things like this late in the day since it's kind of like listening to a podcast. And I'll admit this one wasn't the best one to do since it is in Italian and I don't speak the language. So you kind of need to pay more attention to the subtitles to kind of get what they're conveying. But that's not going to be held against this though. I made it work. So what is interesting here is that the title threw me off. But having completed this, it makes sense. This is set as Nocella is going to be playing Lucio Fulci in an upcoming biopic. Or at least that's what he's saying and that's like the premise here. So he's interviewing people that knew this director. He is trying to get more insight as he can for this role. Now this includes his daughters of Camila and Antoinella. We also have actors and behind the scenes people like Paolo Melco, Sergio Salvati, who was I believe a cinematographer that worked with Fulci. Then we also have the amazing Fabio Frizzi and Michele Soave, or Sove, however you'd say his last name. Now these are all people being interviewed here. So we get a good cross-section, including people who are academics, to help look at the career overall. And it also helped me as a fan of Fulci to learn more about him and his struggles until, you know, getting into horror. And then as he, you know, had some hits, went back as the budgets for his movies dried up. And, I mean, they kind of give their reasoning as to why they think so. So it's a shame as he had the talent and could have been much bigger, but... Yeah, I mean, he kind of fell into like obscurity, but I mean, he is such a well-known director even to this day. So it's kind of an interesting duality. So this is a well-made documentary. We move through the early life and career and then getting into his horror stuff with things like zombie and then moving into his more violent gialli. I like the posters and the clips that are spliced in here. It also does well in showing the tragedy in Fulci's life affecting the movies that he was making. And I mean, it gets quite sad near the end as well. So I'd recommend this to fans of this director as it's an interesting look at his life. So my rating here was a 7.5 out of 10. And so I didn't finish any TV episodes to kind of tack on here at the end. So let me go ahead and get you over to the trailer of my first featured review.
Now, what sort of man would kill like a leopard and leave the traces of a leopard? Crazy guy. But he'd have to know about leopards. Have access to leopard claws and hair. Stay right here and catch a murderer. And for my first featured review is going to be The Leopard Man. This is from 1943. This is directed by Jacques Tournier. This was written by Ardell Ray, and it comes from the story written by... Cornell Woolrich, and it also looks like additional dialogue by Edward Dean. This is starring Dennis O'Keefe, Margot, and Jean Brooks, while also featuring Isabel Jewell, James Bell, Margaret Landry, Abner Biberman, Taluki Pananan, Ben Bard, Ed Agresti, Robert Anderson, Lulu May Borman, Jack Sheffy. David Coda, Sidney D'Albrook, Rosita Delva, Jacqueline DeWitt, and John Dilson. This is a film noir horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd with our synopsis being a seemingly tame leopard used for a publicity stunt escapes and kills a young girl spreading panic throughout a sleepy New Mexico town. So this movie that I didn't know about actually until I read through the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm like using and I mean it's one that I feel like I knew the title because it kind of fell in line with things like Cat People, Alligator Men, or The Mole People which is actually kind of funny that Cat People was brought up because same director and Val Luton was also a producer on here. So that caught my attention when searching and settling into watches because I did see some of these names and I recognized them. And then also we have that this is based on a novel by Woolrich, and I'll actually bring this name back up here shortly because of something that is also a little bit interesting of a connection, but actually let me do some featured notes here. I'll start with our director of Torner. He has helmed 59 films. I've seen five. All are in horror. I've seen the original Cat People. I Walked with a Zombie, This, Curse of the Demon, and Comedy of Terrors. The only one that I haven't yet is War Gods of the Deep from 1965. I actually never heard of this one. Then his script was written by Ray. She did five, and I've seen two of her works. Now, she worked with Torner before with I Walked With a Zombie. The only one that I haven't seen from her yet is Isle of the Dead from 45. Now, I kind of wanted to bring up here is that this is from a work written by Woolrich. I've seen three of his 27 adaptations of his writings. He did things like Rear Window, which kind of shocked me, but I have seen that, of course. Now, he has three in horror. The first was this. Now, I've not seen Night Has a Thousand Eyes, but he did do a Gialli, or somebody, you know, adapted one of his into one of these, and it was Seven Bloodstained Orchids, and I have seen that. Then over to our cast, first is O'Keefe. Now, he did an amazing 175 films, and I've seen three. He was in the original Scarface, which is out of horror. In he did two, and I've seen both of them now. It is this, and you'll find out, which was an interesting ensemble cast, Featuring people like Kay Kaiser, I believe it also has Boris Karloff, as well as Bella Lugosi and Peter Lorre. Then over to our actresses, or actually over to an actress here, that I brought up last week of Brooks. 
I have now seen three of her 33 for 9%. In horror, I've seen three of her five for 60%. I still need to see Obea and The Crime of Dr. Crespi. Then lastly, I'll look at Bell. He has 76 and I've seen two. His first two were this and I Walked with a Zombie. Now I've seen them. I have not seen The Spiral Staircase, The Unknown, or Back from the Dead. And then actually I meant to do this when I was talking about Woolrich. He wrote the, I believe wrote the novel that was based for Curse of the Demon. Could be wrong there, but that name does sound familiar. But I just kind of want to bring that up here. And if I'm wrong, oops, if I'm correct, the more you know. So then let's get to the movie here then. Now, I want to flesh out a bit more of the synopsis is that we have Kiki Walker portrayed by Brooks getting ready. At the same time as her is Gabriella, who is who actually goes by Cloclo, who is portrayed by Margot. She is more popular in this town being close to Mexico. The way she dances with clickers makes her the top act. Now, Kiki is jealous. She is also friends with a fortune teller of Maria, portrayed by Jewel. Everyone saying that this place is shocked when Kiki's manager of Jerry Manning, portrayed by O'Keefe, shows up with a leopard. He wants Kiki to walk into the club to get everyone's attention with this animal. Now this backfires when the leopard gets away from her. It scratches a waiter on its way out. The owner of the animal of Charlie How Come, portrayed by Biberman, is upset. His animal is normally docile, but he was afraid, and now that he is loose, he could hurt someone else out of fear. Now Dennis is as well as the police search for this animal. Now we have a great transition of Cloclo walking down the streets and passing by the house of Teresa Delgado, portrayed by Margaret Landry. She lives there with her mother and younger brother, as well as her father who is at work. Now, Teresa is told to get cornmeal so her mother can make shells for the father when he gets home from work. Now, Teresa is afraid though because it's dark out, and especially because there is talk of this animal. Now, her mother forces her out and not to return unless she has this item. Teresa tries to get it from the closer store, but that one's closed, and they refuse to open to help her. She must go under a bridge to another place, and her way back is even more terrifying when she comes face to face with this leopard, and she is killed. Now, the hunt for the animal continues. Charlie tries to convince the police that the animal would be hiding outside of town. It's hard to believe that Consuelo Contreras, portrayed by Pananen, is attacked in the cemetery on her birthday. Then we have Dr. Galbraith, portrayed by Belle, who is called in on both these cases to examine the bodies. He notices that there's fur of a leper and claw marks at the ladder. Now, Charlie and Jerry want to find the animal before it's too late. There's also guilt for the stunt the former guy performed. And actually, I said those names in reverse how I have them written down. But it's actually Jerry who is the guy who... It's his fault that the stunt was happening when it's Charlie's animal. Then there starts to seem to be wonder here that maybe something or someone else might be doing the killings. So that's going to leave my recap introduction of the characters. Now I meant earlier to go ahead and read from that encyclopedia. So now that I'm at this point here, I'm going to read what Mike Mayo thinks about this movie here real quick. Though many consider this Val Luton tourneur collaboration to be less successful than either the cat people or I walked with the zombie. It's cut from the same highly stylized cloth and it isn't derivative of the other two. The story based on Woolrich's book Black Alibi and more mystery than true horror concerns murders in a New Mexico town that are blamed on a escaped leopard. A threatening aura of the unknown is strong, particularly in the famous street scenes, but the film's attempts at a social criticism like the poor don't cheat one another, a character ponderously states they're all poor together or forced naive and out of place. Today the lack of location exteriors doesn't help either. So as I was going to actually say on myself is that this is set in New Mexico. 
This is a small town that's near the desert. Having Mexico being so close, we're getting religious and supernatural people. Out west, there's like a folklore of like the skinwalkers, which can become animals. Or like people can become animals, that is. Now correlating to cat people, that one features Serbian or Eastern European folklore from a small village. I like that this shows a similar concept, just from a different form of mythology. I picked up elements of the mystery of like almost like werewolf folklore from a documentary that I watched where they believe that these might be similar type ideas here where these like animal-like murders might actually be done by a human potentially in that somebody who has such rage and just the ferocity is hard for people to comprehend. What I like here is that we have a supernatural explanation that could be true. It might also be a more logical one as well. So what makes this work for me though are the characters. I'll also bring in the acting performances as well. O'Keefe is our lead, but I don't think he carries this. I like that he feels sorry for his plan and wants to make it right. He seems like a good guy who might have just made a bad choice. We have Margot, Brooks, and Jewel are all solid in their roles. I like Bella's as doctor who is disturbed by what is happening. The same could be said for Biberman. Now he's the one that made me think that there could be a were-animal and believing that it could be him. Now there's also this dichotomy of believing in myths and science that I also like being explored. Other than that I thought Pananen and Landry and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed there. So I'll have to go into before some trivia would be filmmaking. I think that once again this is shot beautifully. Not the best shot that I've seen from this director. That's not to say that we don't get great transitions. Examples here are when Clo-Clo is walking along the road. Especially at night and how we could, you know, we follow her and then leave her to go to another character. Now the scene with Teresa and the leopard is another good one. How it ends is heartbreaking for the implications, but it's also subdued in what we see. We don't get a lot in the way of effects, but we also don't need them. It is that type of movie. We are also early into cinema as well. Now, the soundtrack also fits for what was needed. You know, special credit to Clo-Clo, again, with her hand clappers. We know that it's her when we hear them, and we don't even necessarily need to see her, and they're used when she is approaching, which works well for some of the ambiance that we get there. Then to do some trivia, the Black Leopard Dynamite was also used in Cat People. In the summer of 52, RKO reissued this film as a double feature with King Kong. RKO cashed in as young theatergoers due to the film's title. We're expecting to see another creature feature, which is actually kind of an interesting thing to do. Everyone in town shares some degree of guilt for the deaths, from Jerry bringing the leopard into a civilized society, to Clo-Clo scaring the leopard, and from the parents who ignored their children to inadvertent bystanders. Freakin' states... That I think that Luton's idea that there's a collective guilt in society, that society itself has its shortcomings, and a lack of real compassion for our fellow human beings is often responsible for the tragic ends. Now, I should say that was William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist. Luton's production team at RKO was given the titles in advance by the studio heads, and then he and his team were responsible for finding a story and making the movie around that title. Makes a whole lot of sense here. Now, Friedkin also credits this film as being an inspiration towards Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction and how it follows characters we believe to be the leads only to leave them behind for long stretches as we shift to other characters instead. They're simply pawns in a greater structure that is time completely unpredicted and therefore suspenseful. Now, there are unidentified musical pieces used during the film. However, the unusual birthday song sung in a cappella de Consuela is called La Menatas which is also used in Mexican Bus Ride from 52. Luton was a master of invoking fear without actually showing anything truly horrifying or graphic, and that's something that filmmakers have lost, and we now feel that we show everything, every plunge of the knife, every moment of pain and agony that victims have to go through. That's what you see in horror films today, people cut up by hacksaws, people ripped apart at the hands of alien creatures. This is Freakin saying this, as we don't see, you know, live longer in our nightmares. 
Freakin says this is much deeper than a B picture and perhaps intended to be. Immediate example is the ball tumbling atop the fountain of water as the film later suggests that our lives are that ball and a lack of control in our own existence. I do like that. Breaking their formula of having film historian Gregory Menk do commentary on the DVD release of Luton's films. The Exorcist director Friedkin does the commentary in 2005 release, which is probably why a lot of these quotes are coming. Tornare believed that in wartime, moviegoers wanted to be scared by the unreal. A young woman who's seen in the house with the mother and little boy playing shadow puppets leaves on a strange journey that will lead to what I believe one of the greatest horror sequences ever filmed. Friedkin's referring to her death on the other side of the door as her mother and brother tried desperately to open it while we watched blood pool at their feet. The studio heads weren't fans of films that they couldn't grasp its intent or structure. That's why I think this actually would have been more helpful today. This is one of the acclaimed director Freakin's favorite movies. Again, why he's probably also quoted here as much as he is. The cemetery scene where a girl accidentally locked in its grounds as it's closed as the night inspired a similar sequence set in a park in Argento's Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Brooks and Jewel would also appear in The Seventh Victim. Also kind of interesting. Luton did that one. Film debut of DeWitt in an uncredited role. Freakin used to walk to and from school as a child in Chicago, and he recalls passing one of the houses every day that a scene of a horrific murder happened, the murder of a little girl called Suzanne Degna, whose body parts were found all over the lawn and in the gutter in the streets next to where she lived. I walked past the house every day feeling like I was in a Luton movie. Margot and Jewel had also been in Lost Horizons from 37, a favorite of Mario Bava, who included several visual references in Barren Blood from 72. What are the elements of a Luton Tornier collaboration that makes them great and makes them last? The important to Friedkin in their application and manipulation of expectations. I have certain insight into film, certain ideas and thoughts about it. This is something that Friedkin was also saying. While it may differ from other viewers, as he might see and think about a movie, he hopes listeners are provoked to thinking about a movie that way, and it's provoking me consciously and unconsciously for 45 years now. Clo-Clo, portrayed by Margot, is marked by a little boy with a flashlight. There is an interesting psychological touch that Luton and Tornare often use. The light on her legs marks her in a way as fate would mark a character she's marked for death. The film is actually many, many films into one, says Friedkin, adding in that it's horror, it's mystery thriller, and it's tale about fate. Bell also played a doctor in Luton and Tornare's I Walked with a Zombie. Interesting there. This is also set in a small New Mexico town, but it was clearly shot on an RKO studio lot. So then, to close out my thoughts here then, is this is a well-made movie. It helps me enjoy this, the fact that it follows elements like Cat People. They're not sharing the characters, and this isn't a sequel, but what it does, though, is borrow themes and use them in different ways. I appreciate that this is a growth of a filmmaker. I'd say the acting here is good. No one necessarily stands out aside from Bieberman to me, though. This has got good cinematography and use of sound with the hand clappers. One that I would recommend to fans of cinema for this era, or at least, you know, having one viewing for this. So my rating here for The Leopard Man is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section that I don't really think I need to, so let me get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. I want one, what's your mercy? Chris, that's someone. It could still be here. Today is his birthday. And it would have been... Can we come in for one minute? One minute. There is a way to get them back. Back from where? Wherever it is they go. Haven't been able to ID her yet. She's my sister. With someone else's blood. It's a ritual. Like a seance? No. 
And for my second featured review is going to be From Black. This is from here in 2023, directed by Thomas Marchesi, who also co-wrote this with Jessup Flower. This stars Anna Camp, John Ailes, and Jennifer LaFleur, while also featuring Travis Hammer, Eduardo Campriano, Richie Montgomery, Kenneth Ford, Alicia S. Mason, Ian Castleberry, Nicholas Marchand, Ariel Nicole, Sasha Poppy Toshe, Kelly Frazier, Jordan Toshe, Janice Heath, Flower, Nafia R. Hardy, and Miranda Campriano. This is a horror film that is from the United States, currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being... A recovering drug addict, desperate for closure and saddled by crushing guilt after the disappearance of her young son, is presented with a bizarre offer to learn the truth about what happened and set things right if she is willing to agree to a terrifying price. So this is a movie that I found on Shudder. Uh, it went on a list of movies to check out since I saw it was a 2023 release. I wasn't sure if I could make it to the theater due to a busy weekend, and I couldn't. So I decided to give this one a go as I needed a new release you know, for the podcast here. All I knew coming in was that this featured Camp, who I knew from the Pitch Perfect movies. Other than that, I was pretty blind. So actually, let me do some featured notes then, and I'll start with our director of Marchesi. He has two that he's directed. The first in horror is this. His other movie he did was called Fallen, which is a documentary about the deaths of in-the-line-of-duty police officers. Then as a writer, he has the same two. His other writer, though, of Flower, this is their feature film debut. To the cast, I'll start with Camp. Now, she's been in 33 works. I've seen three. It would be Pitch Perfect 1 and 2. She has one other thing in horror with the Creepshow Holiday Special that I've not seen. Then her co-star of Ailes has 16 movies, and I've seen three. He was in The Nutty Professor, and its sequel. I've seen them. He also has three that he's done in horror. The first was Dragon Wars, The Gatlop, Hell of a Game. I've only ever seen this, though. Then over to Lafleur. She has 32 films. I've seen five. Not in horror. I've seen The Skeleton Twins. She's done six in genre. I've seen her first with Baghead. She was then in Havenhurst. I have not seen that one. From there, I've seen Take Back the Night, Nope, and Now This. I have not seen They Want Me Gone as the only other one in horror as well. Then I look over at Hammer. He has 28 pictures. I've seen three. Not in horror. I've seen Independence Day Resurgence. He's done three in horror. I have not seen Haunted Boat, but I have seen VFW and Now This. So then for this movie here, we start with getting the lay of the land. We see that this is a rural community that has is right near like deep woods and nature. Our main character is Cora, portrayed by Camp. She is a recovering addict from the synopsis. This movie starts, though, with her older sister of Bray, portrayed by Lafleur, who is a police officer who goes into their childhood home. What she finds is salt on the floor and blood. Cora is covered in it when she goes to the police station. Now, this movie isn't told linear. I do want to establish that here. We should, we end up going into the past to see Cora hanging out with Wyatt, portrayed by Hammer. Later, we hear her blame him for getting hooked on heroin. There's a knock at the door as there's a wellness check being done by Cora's sister. They're looking for Cora's son of Noah, portrayed by Eduardo Campriano. Now he's missing and presumed dead. Having lost her son, Cora is destroyed. She doesn't care much about living. A perk, though, is that she has gotten clean. She is also staying away from Wyatt for the most part. Now, Cora goes to a support group that is led by Abel, portrayed by Ailes. Now, we learn that he lost his daughter in a drowning accident. Cora normally doesn't share, but on this day, she ends up doing that. 
It is at the end of the meeting where everyone is leaving. Now she opens up about what happened and how she feels about it. So this leads to Abel coming to her place, offering her a chance to see her son. She doesn't believe him and thinks it's a seance. It intrigues her though. There is a ritual that is difficult, but if it's done properly, she'll get her son back. He claims that his daughter is alive. He hasn't seen her though. Cora has a decision to make and one that could change the lives of all those around her in the process. I should also point out, Bray is struggling with her inability to help when her nephew disappeared. So we're also kind of seeing the different ways that people handle grief. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap and introduction to the characters. Where I want to start is that this reminded me of a couple different movies just mashed together. One would be A Dark Song. The ritual that is performed isn't an easy one and there are certain things that need to be done for it to work. We have like Cora, who's having lost her son like she did, also drew a parallel to that movie for me. But it's not the same, but we're in a similar vein. But there is a decision that has to be made that brought me to think of like the Hellraiser remake. This is also on the most basic level though with what happens in other movies. And also there's a bit of resolution here as well. So now that I've given my opening thoughts, I want to delve more into the aspects that I've correlated to other things. I think the character of Cora is where I'll go. Like the synopsis said, she feels guilty. She was high and passed out when Noah disappeared. She hasn't forgiven herself. I bet she never will either. I think that Camp's performance here is great as this character. She can convey everything that she needed to here. What I like is as well is that she puts blame on Wyatt. Now her sister does as well. I know part of it is, you know, just by staying away from him, Cora could get clean. It isn't his fault that she started using, but he's still just kind of a bad influence. So let me go over to the end of the ritual. I like that in the beginning, Abel seems like a good guy. He is running this group, and we think he's there to help people. That isn't necessarily the case, though. It is part of it, but there are just other factors around it. Now, with this ritual itself, part of what Cora wants to is believe in it. She is skeptical, though. Bringing back up the movie A Dark Song, I love that this ritual isn't easy. It takes time, and Cora is pushed to her limits if she wants her son back. Now, with movies like this, there are always the idea that this could just be in the character's head. This isn't the case, but as we see the entity. Now, I believe they are crediting it as the Seeker. The makeup on that looked great. It is creepy. The appearance of this is also delayed, and not until the ritual can he speak with Korra. And the deeper it goes, the perversion does as well. If this entity appears to her early, then she probably doesn't start or might even just stop. It waits until she's committed enough, and it's to the point of no return. I can also see the allegory here for drug use, which having Cora as a recovering addict draws a parallel there. This is my favorite aspect of the movie and it works. Now since I've gone into the performance of camp, let me go over to the rest of the actors. Ailes is solid as this guy that looks disarming. We think that he has the best intentions, but that might not be the case. Lafer is also good as the sister. She harbors her own form of guilt with what happened to Noah. Now she also is trying to make things right, which adds an element. Now, we also have Hammer is solid as this addict, as he has such good rants that he goes on. It is fun to see him checked by Bray. Then we have Compriano, Richie Montgomery, Ford, and the rest of the cast just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. So then before I go into some trivia, all I have left to do is some things with the filmmaking. And let me start with the cinematography. This is shot well. I like what they're doing with framing. They use the whole screen, which is good. It kept me attentive, as I'd also say that the effects are good. There is CGI that was used, and I didn't have a major issue there. The soundtrack and design were also good. It made me uncomfortable and raised the tension, which works. Now, if I do have an issue, it's with the pacing. This isn't told linear, and we see the ending first, and we jump into the past to see where things go from there, or how they end up there. 
with what is told, we jump back and forth without much sign. That isn't a bad thing necessarily. The only issue I have is that the movie builds and the resolution that we received didn't necessarily fully land. It is good. I just felt generic as I do think there is still some good heart here though. There's a little bit of trivia that I was going to do here from the IMDb page and the quote from the start of the movie was originally from the Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith novelization. The folk quote reads the dark is generous and is patient and is and always wins but in the heart of its strength lies its weakness one lone candle is enough to hold it back love is more than a candle love can ignite the stars and then the other thing is camp and ales were both in murder at yellowstone city never heard of it so then in conclusion this is a film that i'm not hearing much buzz about but i still think it's worth a watch it explores interesting concepts like loss drug use and how far you'll go to get someone back that you love I think the acting is good across the board. Camp impressed me here, to be honest. This is well made with the cinematography and the sound design. If there is an issue, there's just a bit too much CGI, and it doesn't necessarily stick the landing. I still enjoyed my time here, though, and I would actually rate this as a 7.5 out of 10. I'm not going to do a spoiler section. I don't really necessarily think that I need to do that here, so what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to one last break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have right on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. And for my next episode, since it's actually going to be another milestone here of episode 190, what I'm going to go ahead and do there is it's going to be my top films from 1923, 1933, as well as kind of going through a little bit of the lost films. So that'll be the feature thing that I do over there. So keep your eyes out for that episode to be dropping. I'll also watch a 2023 release. I'll try to do a rewatch if I can. I know I have a couple of them that Jamie and I want to watch together since I've already seen them, but she hasn't yet. So I will get into that. I'll do another Traverse of the Threes movie that's going to be older. And then I think that's about it that I'm going to be kind of doing there. So I'm not really sure if there's anything else I need you to speed with here. So what I will say then in closing is that whatever you do today, I hope you're safe and doing it. Have a great time out there. Thank you so much for listening as this is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. And I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>